Before we begin this week's Parsha podcast, I would like to make a quick disclaimer. My general policy before I record a Parsha podcast is to try to study the whole Parsha in depth before I hit record. And that's, of course, because I have the best audience in the world. And y'all deserve the courtesy and the honor and the respect that I don't mail it in. I give you a complete good job. Unfortunately, this week, well, fortunately, we traveled across the country. We left Houston Monday morning and we arrived in New York. I'm actually recording from my parents' basement in Muncie, New York. But we arrived late on Thursday and therefore, I did not have the time or the peace of mind to really go through the Parsha in a rigorous way. So I was actually thinking maybe to not record, but I nevertheless decided, you know what, this is, these are my dearest friends in the world, and I'm going to share a few thoughts that I had on the Parsha during the drive. And I think they're valuable lessons, so it's worth it. Even if it's not as good as normal Parsha podcasts, let's give it a go. And as always, my email address is RabbiWolby at gmail.com. So the first question I want to ponder is the role that Joshua played in the debacle, in the fiasco of the spies. And as I mentioned in the Parsha rebroadcast from last year, it's really interesting. Moshe nominates 12 leaders of tribes to go reconnoiter the land, to go inspect, surveil the land. And only one of them does he make a special petition, a special blessing, a special prayer that they survive. Joshua was originally called Hosea, and Moshe changed his name. He renamed him Yehoshua. Joshua, and like Rashi explains, that the name Yehoshua means God will save. And the intention behind the renaming of Joshua is that Moshe is praying that God will save Joshua from the evil plot of his collaborators of his conspirators of his co-spies and there's a few questions obviously that jump out if Moshe knows that there's an evil plot afoot if he knows that some of these spies are going with nefarious intentions well why does he send them to begin with that's of course maybe one of the general questions of the whole parsha why is Moshe doing something that he seems to sense he intuits is a bad idea that's of course a general question But specifically Joshua, Joshua is being renamed. Moshe is praying for Joshua. You should survive this terrible thing that's going to happen to the spies. Moshe, of course, his prayer is very potent. His prayer, of course, in the end of the Parsha, Moshe is going to save the entire Jewish people with his prayer. Yet he chooses to pray, it seems like, exclusively for Joshua. Why does he not pray for everyone else? Maybe he could have avoided the whole thing He prays that all of them have noble, righteous intentions. All of them remain righteous. None of them sin. And we could avoid the whole fiasco. So that's an important question to ponder. And maybe there's several answers. One idea that I had is maybe Moshe indeed did try to pray for all of these spies. And maybe he did try to change all their names. But maybe the rest of them said, Moshe, you're not changing our names. I'm not accepting that. Maybe only Joshua, who was Moshe's protege, who was Moshe's right-hand man, maybe only he accepted it, and therefore only his name is changed for posterity. That's some speculation. My grandfather, blessed memory, he said on this particular question, he says that prayer is not just throwing darts at the wall. When we pray, 
we're lobbying God, we're petitioning God. And we're only required, only supposed to pray if we have a sense that this is something which is feasible, that this is something which is on the table. We don't pray, for example, for miracles. Why? Because that's not the proper venue or the proper mode or the proper medium to try to get a miracle. In fact, if you try to get a miracle, you're not going to get a miracle. So when someone prays for a miracle, there's something off with this whole process. We pray for things that are within the realm of, of the potentially feasible, not the things that are miracles. And Moshe was able to sense the attitude, the feeling of the various spies, and he sensed that Joshua, he was someone who was leaning towards holiness. He was someone who was desirous of righteousness, and therefore for him, for Joshua, prayer was appropriate, whereas there was such corruption with the rest of the spies, their intention was so awry that the prayer was inappropriate for them. And it's really interesting because we know Joshua's not the only one of the spies that ends up being very righteous. He has, of course, with him the spy representing the tribe of Judah, Caleb. He, too, comports himself with absolute distinction. And, in fact, he's given a great reward. He's given an extra inheritance line of Israel because of his valiant heroism in the episode of the spies. Yet, apparently, Moshe does not pray for Caleb, and yet he's able to have the wherewithal to survive. So that's an interesting angle to to ponder, that maybe Moshe's praying only for the people that he senses are capable of withstanding the temptations, or are desirous of withstanding the worst impulses of the spies, and he senses that Caleb is maybe a lost cause or someone who's beyond the pale, beyond the realm of prayer, yet Caleb is able to muster up the internal fortitude to be able to resist the rest of his co-spies and to remain true to his mission. I did see a very interesting comment in the Sepharno. The Sepharno says when Moshe renames Joshua. So Rashi says that he renames Joshua. May God save you from the evil plot, from the evil scheme of the rest of the spies. The Sephardim adds another point. He says that Moshe changed his name to pray for him that he should survive. So that's, that's like Rashi. And that he should save others. Moshe didn't just want to save Joshua. Moshe is nominating Joshua that he keeps the rest of them, the rest of the 11 other spies, in check. Joshua is going to be Moshe's man on the inside. He is being hired. He's being nominated. He's being directed by Moses to curb the worst impulses of the spies. He's like the the foreman of the jury. He is the one who is in charge. He's given the responsibility of all of them. And this got me thinking. So Joshua is given this very important role. Moshe knows. Moshe recognizes that the people that he's sending could potentially go awry. And Joshua is going to keep them in check. So was Joshua successful? Did he do his job well? So maybe you can make the argument that maybe he saved Caleb, even though we don't exactly know what Joshua did over the course of those 40 days 
to try to influence and persuade the spies. But we see in general, Moshe is tasking him with making sure that the spies behave properly and we have a disaster. We have a debacle. We have a total fiasco. Apparently, Joshua failed at his mission. And this got me thinking. Essentially, everything that we've seen from Joshua hitherto was a failure. So the first time that Joshua appears in Scripture is in the middle of Exodus. The Jewish people have left Egypt. They have not yet arrived at Sinai. And they have their first war. Their first war is with Amalek. And that's the time where Moshe goes on top of the mountain and he raises his arms and he has Hur, his nephew on one side, Aaron on the other side. And he nominates Joshua again, this time to lead the battle in the valley below, to lead the actual war with Amalek. The verse says that Joshua was successful. Vayechelash Yehoshua, Yehoshua, Joshua weakened Amalek and his nation with the sword. Now we know Amalek is the one nation that there's a mitzvah for us to try to utterly destroy. So this got me thinking, even though it doesn't spell it out in this story, we know that we're supposed to get rid of Amalek, we're supposed to annihilate Amalek, and Joshua is leading the war effort, and what does he do? He wins the war, that's great, but he just weakens Amalek. He doesn't absolutely annihilate and decimate and destroy them. So can we characterize the first appearance of Joshua in Scripture as a success? I would think not, because he didn't utterly destroy Amalek. Well, when's the next time that Joshua appears in Scripture? They arrive at Mount Sinai, and Moshe goes up the mountain, and then, of course, 40 days later, we have a sin of the, uh, the sin of the golden calf, and Moshe comes down the mountain, carrying the two tablets, and there's one man waiting for him. And that's Joshua. And in fact, our sages tell us that Joshua went as far as he could go with Moses up to the foot of the mountain. And then he pitched his camp there and he was there for 40 days waiting for Moshe to return. He didn't want to miss a second of time with Moses, with Moshe. Moshe comes down bearing the two tablets and they are hearing loud, shrieking, wailing noises from the camp. And there's a very interesting dialogue between Joshua and Moses to try to decipher, to try to diagnose what is happening in the camp. And Joshua says to Moshe, it sounds like there's a war in the camp. We better hustle back to go figure out what's going on. And Moshe says, no, it's not the sound of winning. It's not the sound of losing. It's the sound of distress. There's something really bad that's happening, but it's not a war. It's not an external enemy. So again, we see another interaction, Joshua, another appearance of Joshua in the Torah, and he is diagnosing a problem, and he's wrong. He's misunderstanding the wailing sounds from the camp, and Moshe has to correct him. Again, Joshua appears in the Torah, and it seems like his participation, his role, is one where he makes an error. And then, when does he appear again? He appears again in last week's Parsha, we have the episode of Eldad and Medad. Parshas Bahaloscha. There are 70 people that are given prophecy. Two of them are in the camp and they start prophesying and they start saying, oh, Moshe's going to die and Joshua's going to lead the Jewish people into the land. 
And what is Joshua's response? Adoni Moshe Klaim. My master Moshe, incarcerate them. Alternatively, destroy them. Here he sees what apparently is a crime. Eldon and Maidan, these two people, these two newly minted prophets, they are saying things that Joshua finds to be so problematic. And he says, we have to do something very aggressive about these people. We have to incarcerate them. We have to punish them. We have to destroy them. And Moshe says, no. These people are bad. Oh, no, I wish every Jew was like these two people. I wish every Jew also became a prophet. So again, we see Joshua is presented with a situation, and he makes a call. And Moshe says, not only is it a bad call, it's the worst call. You think these people are bad? Oh, no, I wish everyone else was like Eldon and Medad. And here in our Parsha, Joshua is told by Moshe, you're a check on the spies. I want you to go there. I want you to be my man. I'm nominating. I'm renaming you. You're in charge to make sure that they don't go awry. And apparently, he fails. So this is really interesting to me. Joshua, of course, is going to be Moshe's successor. He's going to be the absolute, unanimous, undisputed leader of the Jewish people. And yet, where he appears in the Torah, at least up to this point, it seems like it's failure after failure after failure. Why exactly is Joshua being selected as Moshe's successor? So I wanted to speculate an idea. And this is a theme that maybe we've touched on in the past. Yes, it's true. Joshua is not flawless. Joshua is not someone who is peeping early. Joshua is not this wunderkind that has lived a flawless, mistake-free life. Joshua is someone who has made a lot of mistakes. And in fact, I think if you read the Torah and the way we've gone through the stories, it seems evident that he is not, at least from the beginning, this uninterrupted sequence of scintillating success. He's not someone that is unfamiliar with failure. But Joshua does have something going for him. Joshua is the paragon of someone who is always learning. Always learning, always growing, always improving. The one thing we find out about Joshua is that he's always with Moshe. He's Moshe's right-hand man from day one. For 40 years, Joshua has not left Moshe's side And that is when he is going to take over the reins of leadership. What we learn from Joshua, and maybe the reason why the Torah highlights his mistakes and his failures, is what is the proper trajectory, the proper path towards greatness. We like to think that great people are born. They're born with outsized abilities, outsized talents, Straight A's all the way through school, destined for greatness from day one. If you just read Joshua's stories and you just kind of edited everything else out of the Torah and say, okay, let's let's look at Joshua's stories and let's examine each one of them. You would say, failure, 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 failure. So you would say. But what ultimately results from that? He becomes the next leader. Maybe we could even suggest that not only does failure 
not preclude someone from being a great leader. But when someone is flawless, they're actually going to make a poor leader. You become a better leader when you make mistakes and then you're able to learn from your mistakes. You're able to recalibrate and learn for next time. You learn a lot more from doing something wrong and adjusting and fixing than from doing it right the first time. Learning, growing, progressing is a process of fumbling your way almost through blunder after blunder, but then constantly readjusting, reflecting, introspection, making adjustments, and improving. So in fact, these stories, yes, if you look at them in isolation, you would see failure. But maybe they are, in fact, the credentials of Joshua as a leader. He made a mistake, and he adjusted. He recognized that he made a mistake. He recognized the misdeed. He took it as a, as a lesson, and now he reaffixed it in his mind, and he's been improved, and he has been changed. I had a very interesting insight. Who is the first king of the Jewish people? The first king of the Jewish people is King Saul. And King Saul is always represented as the perfect child, as the perfect king, as someone who towered above all his contemporaries. He was the biggest, he was the strongest, he was the tallest, he was the most handsome, he was the most righteous. He had everything going for him. If you produced kings in a factory, cookie-cutter kings, perfect, it would look like Saul. Yet his reign lasted for but two years, and he's deposed. And why was he deposed? So read the story. In the book of Samuel, the prophet tells him, go destroy Amalek. And he doesn't do a complete job. And Samuel tells him, God has taken away your monarchy and given it to your successor, who's greater than you. And who is Saul's successor? It's King David. So isn't this interesting? The first episode of Joshua's trajectory to leadership is a mistake. And it's the exact same mistake that Saul made as his leadership declined. Saul and Joshua do the exact same thing. Joshua has a war with Amalek, doesn't destroy them. Saul has a war with Amalek, doesn't destroy them. For one, that is the first step of their ascent to greatness, of becoming a great leader. For the other, that is the final death knell of their leadership. What's the difference? The difference is, is that Joshua made the mistake, and then he learned from his mistake and he corrected it. If Joshua had a second chance with Amalek, he would indeed destroy them. He's always learning. He's always Moshe's right-hand man. He never departs from him, always improving. Saul's mistake was the lack of leadership from not learning from Joshua's mistake. And therefore, yes, he was great, but there was a certain stagnation. He wasn't improving, and as a result, he's not a good candidate for a king, for a leader. This is, I think, a foundational insight. I think it's not a unknown idea, but it's a powerful idea. That what determines someone's status and what someone's stature is not the absolute record 
of successes versus failures in their life. What matters is what do you do after you make a decision, after you make a mistake, do you improve yourself? I'm reading a very interesting book right now called Atomic Habits. It's about making small atomic changes, tiny, tiny improvements that will compound every day. And over the course of a year, the absolute change will be gargantuan. And the idea is if someone gets 1% better each day, well, if you were to get 1% better, how much is 1%? It's not that much of an improvement. You know, to, to improve 10%, to improve 100%, that's very difficult. But 1%, everyone can improve 1%. So you improve 1% every day. Every day you get slightly better, 1% better. Over the course of a year, because this compounds, so the first day you're 100%, and then it's 101%, 1% improvement. And the next day, you're improving not on the 100, not on a linear scale, but on an exponential scale. So this 101 is now 1% of that, and then 1% of that, etc. Over the course of a year, you'll end up 37 times better than where you started from. And that's only with a small, slight 1% improvement each day. If you were to take Joshua and Saul on day one, it would be no contest. Saul would tower over Joshua. And I think if we were observers, we would say, this one's the leader and this one's not the leader. And you know what? Joshua makes a blunder, makes a mistake. He doesn't vanquish Amalek. But Joshua's always improving every day, a little bit better. And by the time he's done, by the time Joshua's story is finished, we're told that Moshe's face is like the sun and Joshua's face is like the moon. Meaning Moshe is the greatest leader we've ever had. And number two, undisputed number two, is Joshua. Every day he got let up a little better and his blunders, his mistakes, propelled him to his greatness. I had another interesting idea. I think it's an adjacent point to this. You know, over the course of the Torah, there's two sins that are very similar to each other. The sin of the golden calf they read in the book of Exodus and the sin of the spies of the Swiss Parsha. And there's so many similarities between the two. Of course, both of them somehow relate to 40 days. Moses tells the Jewish people, I'm coming back in 40 days. And they make a miscalculation. And they think 40 days have elapsed, but it's really only 39 days. And they get impatient, and they make the golden calf. And the next day, Moshe arrives, and pandemonium has been unleashed. The spies, they travel the land for 40 days, and after the 40 days, they come back, and they share their report, and the nation again descends into mayhem. So two sins, both associated with 40 days. Both of them caused God to threaten to annihilate the Jewish people. Again, the Jewish people have done a lot of sins, or do a lot of sins of the course of the Torah. But only two of them caused God to say, okay, I'm done with the Jewish people. I'm going to annihilate them all, and I'm going to start from scratch with just Moses. And of course, in both instances, Moshe saves the day via prayer. But what hit me this year is that both sins had very important contributors who could, I would say, reasonably 
be blamed for the blunder. So, of course, the golden calf. Who made the golden calf? The golden calf was actually made by Aaron. Now, of course, he had all his reasons why he did it. He tried to delay. He thought it would be worse if he didn't do it. Aaron had a lot of reasons to do what he did. But if you read the story in the book of Exodus, it seems, at least from a very basic reading of the story, it seems that Aaron is culpable in that sin. And what about this is Parsha? God tells Moses, send for yourself spies. And Rashi right away tells us, this is your idea, God tells Moshe. If it was up to me, I would say, don't send spies, just trust God. God's been with you at your side, hasn't let you down, you can rely on him. Why are you sending spies? You don't trust me? If you're doing this, God says to Moses, it's your call, not mine. And indeed, Moshe sends the spies. He is the initiator of this fiasco. His fingerprints are all over this debacle. So isn't it interesting? The two twin sins of the Jewish people that that caused the Jewish people to face annihilation, both of them could potentially be pinned on the two greatest leaders of the Jewish people at the time, on Aaron and on Moshe. And then there's another level to this, maybe an ironic idea. Jewish people do this in the golden calf. So what happens? What's the result of the golden calf? So according to many of the commentators, most famously the Sepharno, he points out that the result of the golden calf is the tabernacle. The idea of one location where you can connect to God. And you connect to God in the tabernacle more than any other place. That's a result of the sin of the golden calf. Had the Jewish people not done the sin of the golden calf, then the connection that is achieved in the tabernacle could have been achieved everywhere. In fact, right after the Ten Commandments, at the end of Parshish Yisro, God tells the Jewish people, wherever you mention my name, I will come and I will bless you. And the Sephardim understands that, that you don't need to have a special place where God is particularly close in. Wherever you are, you could be anywhere in the world, and you invoke God, you right away have that closeness. That was the love of the Jewish people after the Sinai experience. And then the Jewish people do the sin of the golden calf, and God says, okay, that level of connection, we're done with that. It's no longer true that you could go to Antarctica or Nepal or the moon and have this unfiltered direct connection with God. Now, that's only going to be possible in the Mishkan of the Tabernacle. Who benefited from that? Who benefited from the sin of the golden calf, so to speak? The sin that caused the epicenter of holiness to be constricted, to be limited to the Tabernacle? Well, that's Aaron. Aaron and his family, they are the Kohanim, they are the priests, and they're the ones who were in charge of the tabernacle. So isn't it interesting that the sin of the golden calf that ostensibly could be blamed on Aaron, the result of that is Aaron benefits immensely, immeasurably. He and his family, they're the ones who are now in charge of the temple and the tabernacle. Everything there is overseen by them. They're given stature, they're given greatness because of the sin of the golden calf, that Aaron is somewhat associated with. What an interesting irony. What about the sin of the spies? That again, like we said, could potentially have been blamed on Moshe, 
who benefits from this? Well, let's do the math. Moshe is leading the Jewish people. Moshe is teaching the Jewish people Torah. Moshe is at the helm of the Jewish people. Suppose the Jewish people did not do the sin of the spies. You would not have the result of that, namely the 40-year decree that the Jewish people live in the wilderness for 40 years before they enter the land. I saw an amazing idea in the Kliyakar. The Kliyakar quotes from our sages that say that as a result of this sin, that again, to a certain degree, at least a simplistic view, it's Moshe's responsibility or Moshe's fault. As a result of this sin, Jewish people live in the wilderness for 40 years, and Moshe's life is extended for 40 years. Why? Because had the Jewish people not done the sin, they would have entered the land immediately, and it was already decreed that Moshe would not lead the Jewish people into the land. And therefore, had the spies not sinned, then Moshe would have died 40 years sooner, because the Jewish people would have entered the land sooner, and Moshe could not enter with them. And therefore, as a result of the spies, Moshe benefited that his life was extended for 40 years. Who would have taught the Jewish people Torah? Who knows? Again, in that counterfactual, in that world that never happened, had the sin of spies not happened, had the Jewish people entered the land immediately, Moshe would have died before the conquest, and then how the rest of the Torah would have been conveyed to the Jewish people is a great mystery. But isn't it ironic that these two sins, Aaron is somewhat responsible for the golden calf, he benefits the most from the aftermath of the golden calf. Moshe is somewhat responsible for the sin of the spies, he benefits 40 years out of his life and his leadership as a result of the sin of the spies. Isn't that interesting? And I would say it's an adjacent point to what we said earlier with Joshua, that someone's blunders are their boons. Someone's weaknesses, that actually leads, that contributes to their strengths. Very interesting idea. And I think it's inspiring for us. You know, we're talking about angels, we're talking about titans, we're talking about the greatest people in our history, and we're finding their flaws. And if we could find flaws in Moshe and Aaron and Joshua, what could we say about us? We're such fragile, fraught, small people, and we have so many flaws in our character, in our life, in our behavior, in our relationship with God. How do we feel good about ourselves? I think this story or these angles of our parsha are very inspiring. That when someone makes a mistake, that is an opportunity to learn. And the more someone learns, more the more someone acquires the skill of self-improvement, the greater they're, they're going to be in the end. What determines someone being a tzaddik or a rasha, righteous or wicked, is not necessarily just the equation of how many sins, how many mitzvahs, let's weigh them up against each other. What really matters is after someone makes a mistake and everyone makes mistakes, what do you do about it? Do you take it as an opportunity to to improve or do you flounder and wallow and just descend into the vicious cycle of despair? The verse tells us, famous verse in scripture, Sheva yipol tzadik 
that Sadak falls down seven times and gets up. And our sages tell us, this does not mean that even after they fall, the tzaddik gets up. Oh no, what this means is, a tzaddik would not exist unless they've fallen seven times before. Joshua would not be the leader of the Jewish people unless he's had these failures and he learned how to deal with it and how to improve, how to take their lessons home and how to change their life going forward. And the hope is we take, we take this lesson and we constantly improve and we recognize that a mistake, a failure, a blunder is not only to be expected, but it is actually an opportunity to learn, to adjust, to fix, to course correct, and to improve. And the result of all these improvements will hopefully change and transform us into becoming the best people that we could become. Thank you for listening. Sorry for the late release. Again, we arrived uh, yesterday. Today's Friday, the day before Shabbos, Erev Shabbos. It's late. I know I apologize for that. I had two choices, either to do a Pasha podcast or to not do it. I figured even if it's late, I'll do it. And if people listen to it and enjoy, then we all benefit. Thank you so much for listening. I'm going to try again next week to get a Pasha podcast done. I'll keep you posted on my attempts to get into Canada. Hopefully about to get in. I'll let you know about that. Right now we're in New York. We're in Muncie, New York. I'm in my parents' basement. Have an amazing Shabbos. Thank you for listening. My email address is rabbiwalbejima.com. I look forward to speaking to you next time.